the corner. Kay Young won't drop. Draving on the rebound. Pockets. Five seconds remaining. It is Tucker. Ewell. Off the glass. And this will be a 99-87 ball game. The Iowa Cornets win it. 99-87. And let's credit the Iowa Cornets for taking the measure to Miss Althea Gwynn. Sikorsky and his New York Stars and before we take a look at these statistics let's talk with Jolene Simpson as we have mentioned several times in the broadcast Jolene the co-captain of the 1976 women's Olympic basketball team for the USA competing in Montreal and a veteran of AAU competition the Pan Am Games and you have had your taste your first taste of professional basketball from the WBL and let me ask you your impressions, Julian. Well, I'm pleased to a certain point. Um, you know, as I said before, I've played with some of these girls and played against them, and I know what they're capable of doing. And today, uh, many did not play or do what they were capable of doing. But um, I'm happy to see women's basketball develop a pro league right now, and I hope it stays, and I believe it's going to stay because the people want it to stay. Just the fact that we have, uh, what, 42,000 or 4,200 people here today, um, it's a step in the right direction. And Milwaukee had almost 8,000 for their game so the interest is there and um, a lot of young people who are watching today now can have their aspirations and their goals to someday play women's professional league who knows I might be back playing in about a month or two <laughs> 99 to 87 is the final score back for a final wrap-up on this public television station in just a moment welcome to good seats still available a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. All right, let's get this underway, shall we? My name is indeed Tim Hanlon, and I thank, of course, our friend Corey Coates for giving me that introduction, as he has done each and every week, for God's sakes, for the last two and a half years. I don't think he gets any royalties off of it. God forbid I even get any royalties off of this. But anyway, I still welcome you to the proceedings. It's good seats still available. Our curious little podcast, our journey each and every week into what used to be in professional sports. I can't thank you enough for finding us and tolerating us yet again this week. Uh, but I think you're going to be rewarded uh, with a very interesting and, and somewhat unexpected, I think, a conversation with uh, with this week's guest. He is an author. Uh and there's really not much more to that because that is literally what our guest Stephen Provo does. He writes. He's a writer. Writer writes, as they say. Uh, obviously, a lot of, you know, as you can imagine, a lot of journalism experience uh, over the years. Uh, the Fresno Bee, for example, uh, for, for a good decade or so. But this is a, a, a person, as you will hear, with many eclectic uh, tastes and interests, uh, uniquely has written a ton uh, about just about all of them. And uh, I stumbled across... Two books, actually, that's where we're going to spend the majority of our time in our conversation coming up with Stephen Provo. The realm of forgotten sports seems to be something on his uh, uh, short list of interests. And I always uh, am very interested in, in other people who who share. And I think it's a smaller pool than, than most of our listeners who tend to be, I don't know, more interested, I guess, in a particular team or a particular sport or a league uh, or some other sort of halcyon memory of, of their childhood. Uh, but it's that rare breed uh, that goes deeper and is just generally interesting in the whole thing of defunctness when it comes to sports. Teams that sort of came and went or went to another city or, uh, you know, abandoned them, maybe the, the the arena or the park that they played in similarly abandoned. Who knows psychologically why it's interesting to people like uh, 
like yours truly and, and a small group of others. But but we're fascinated by the stories, the tales, the the, the money in people's eyes or the perception that uh, this you know new league or new team or new whatever uh, was going to take on the world or challenge conventions or, or maybe even usher in a whole new sport altogether. That's sort of the fascination that that I've been interested in for years. Uh, and uh, I think we have to harken back, actually, maybe to our, our second ever episode uh, with our pal Andy Crossley, I think, to find another person who's really kind of been, uh, you know, similarly focused on on this uh, particular illness, shall we say. Uh, and by the way, if you haven't been to Andy Crossley's website, uh, shame on you, because it is basically the uh, the patron saint of this uh, of this show and arguably the inspiration for it. Uh, that's called funwhileitlasted.net. Uh, it's the closest thing to a, a living, breathing encyclopedia there is uh, for all kinds of teams and leagues and franchises and, and, and whatnot uh, no longer with us. And, uh, you know, hopefully we'll have uh, Andy back again to kind of just uh, reminisce maybe about our, our interview now over two years ago. But uh, Stephen Provo is probably the next best thing and, and arguably uh, a fascinating conversation in and of itself. There are two books that uh, stood out in my mind uh, with Stephen that uh, kind of piqued my interest. And I said, hey, you know, I got to interview this guy. Uh, one of which is called A Whole Different League, which, as the name uh, sort of hints at, uh, the subtitle is called Outlaw Leagues, Forgotten Teams, and Other Adventures in American Sport. And it's a it's a nice, uh, very good and well-researched re- uh, and written a survey of, uh, not comprehensively, but probably some of the, the more memorable and, frankly, a few of the less memorable uh, leagues uh, that uh, sort of came and went. And yeah, there's stuff on the NASL and the World Hockey Association and you know, uh, the Arena Football League and the XFL and, uh, you know, a bunch of things that we've talked about in, in various episodes, but a bunch of things that we really haven't yet uh, that, and or that we want to go deeper into. In particular, things like, uh, geez, let me just pick one out of the out of the air here, is uh, World Team Tennis. Uh, obviously, we've got a bunch of uh, leads into some conversations around that. But there's also something that he talks about, which is kind of my holy grail, actually. Uh, the deeper I've gotten into this uh, subject, it's called the National Bowling League. Uh, and if you remember back to uh, some of our earlier episodes when we were talking uh, about uh, the great Lamar Hunt, uh, he of the AFL and the NASL for helping sort of co-found those. Uh, one of uh, Lamar Hunt's uh, little escapades, uh, even before those were getting underway, and I think it was 1960, was this thing called the National Bowling League. And uh, it was uh, the whole concept was sort of a team-based league approach. Uh, that would uh, uh, literally, you know, bowl and eventually get onto television uh, and be competitively so. And actually, it wound up faltering and and sort of giving way to uh, what became more of a uh, more of a tour oriented thing called the Pro Bowlers Association, which we know today. Uh, but uh, we we get into a little bit of that with Stephen. But uh, again, it's it, his book again. A whole different league is sort of focused on uh, sort of a whole smattering. It's a really good primer, I think, on a bunch of different leagues. And boy, oh boy, each of them have uh, interesting stories, as proven in uh, a book that uh, Stephen just published about two months ago uh, about one of those stories. And ironically, or maybe not ironically, it uh, happens to feature or be featured on or focused on, there you go, uh, a previous guest on this show. Uh, her name was Molly Kazmer, or is Molly Kazmer, but her name, uh, maiden name was Bolin, Molly Bolin. And as you all remember from that earlier episode, uh, geez, back a year and a half ago already, Machine Gun Molly, as she would know, was known, was one of the uh, the standout stars of this thing called the Women's Basketball League uh, of the late 1970s and very early 1980s. And Stephen, in the course of his research, especially about the WBL, 
uh, reached out to Molly and found her story to be very interesting and recognized that hadn't really been deeply written about. Hence the book, which is called The Legend of Molly Bolin, Women's Pro Basketball Trailblazer. And, and indeed, of course, that is indeed what she is. Uh, and that clip that you heard at the very beginning of this show mere minutes ago uh, was from one of her games. Uh, actually, it was uh, I've got the details right here. Yes. December 10th, 1978, to be exact. Mike Newell on the call for the Iowa Public Broadcasting Network. And yes, that was a live game uh, featuring the Iowa Cornets in one of their uh, earliest of games. I think it might have been actually the second ever game played in the WBL. And Molly Bolin, of course, was part of that. So we get into that story, uh, how she, how he uh, and she got connected and uh, how the book sort of came to be. And obviously that being an outgrowth of the uh, the earlier work uh, from uh, last year called A Whole Different League. We get into all of that stuff. And it is fascinating, trust me, uh, with Stephen Provo, uh, our guest this week coming up in mere moments. Uh, and of course, before we do that, we have to call out at least one of our great sponsors. Uh, and this week we spin the uh, sponsorship dial uh, and we land again on our friends, streakersports.com. And again, they are the purveyor of sports culture. They have, uh, they're really, really cool stuff, uh, especially in, in t-shirts, uh, and other, uh, uh, you know, sort of Jersey type stuff, uh, long sleeve shirts and, uh, baby gear and lots of really cool things that, um, sort of are this blend of of sports, you know, things like teams and logos and that kind of stuff, but also pop culture. And they kind of mash them up together uh, for just a, a treasure trove of really fun stuff. Yeah, the Caddyshack collection, certainly interesting for sure. Uh, you like the uh, you like Bill Raftery, as I do when uh, college basketball season rolls around. Well, y- you want that uh, uh, Bill Raftery onions shirt. And if you don't know what onions is and his uh, catchphrase, well, look it up. Uh, they've got a great collection of, of Bill Raftery inspired onions wear, and they're, they're, they're great. And there's no better way to, you know, hang out at a big East game and, and show your love for the great Bill Raftery. But there's also, as you know, by now, and if you don't, well, this is another reason to check them out at streakersports.com. Go to the defunct leagues section. It's in their special collections category. And yeah, they've got four leagues worth of great defunct T-shirts and memories and logos, all kinds of stuff. Check it out. If you're interested in the major indoor lacrosse league of your, if you're interested in the United States or uh, football league or otherwise known as the USFL, uh, they've got great uh, shirts and stuff there. The WHA is memorialized in a special tab of offerings uh, devoted to them. And of course, the ABA, the American Basketball Association, all those leagues and then a ton more other things and stuff uh, in the realm of sports. Uh, is uh, yours to enjoy. Uh, check them out at streakersports.com. They, again, are the purveyor of sports culture. And I noticed just now, maybe I just missed this, that's trademarked. So don't bother using that term, purveyor of sports culture, because Streaker Sports got it. Uh, but when you're on the site, of course, and when you check out all their great stuff and you find something you like, we've got a promo code for you. Use it. Use it early. Use it often. And that promo code, of course, is Good Seats. Yep. What a shock, huh? Good seats. That's the promo code at streakersports.com. 10% off all your purchases using that promo code good seats. We love streaker sports. We hope you do too. And um, we thank them for their sponsorship. Of course, we hope, of course, too. And additionally, that uh, you will uh, enjoy this conversation that we had just a couple of weeks ago with uh, author uh, extraordinaire. His name is Stephen Provo. And here's our conversation coming up.
give our audience a sense of sort of how this sort of topic entranced you and got you interested enough to write a book or two on teams and leagues no longer around? Well, I've always been interested in things that people might have forgotten, if not for being reminded of them. And I've always been a sports fan. I started out as a journalist at a small daily um, as a sports editor and was worked as a sports editor for on and off for about 10 years and then went on to, to work in news. But I always had that interest in sports. When I was uh, when I was young, my dad gave me a book called uh, The Great American Sports Book by George Geip, and it went into a number of obscure stories about people like John L. Sullivan from boxing, and and I just got mesmerized by the idea of all these people who had uh, Jack Johnson and uh, Tommy Burns who had held the heavyweight championship back in the day. Um, and it, but it also talked about things like bowling and cycling and sports that don't show up in the sports pages that often. And I found that really interesting, too. And so this book had always been a whole different league, had always been a book that I thought I would be interested in writing, but I hadn't gotten around to it. I've written um, about 20 books now, and I just did it in my spare time because it was a passion. It was my my own interest. And I thought I had the idea of putting together something like what George Guy did, except for um, focusing on leagues that were leagues and teams that were defunct. And so I came up with 22 or 23 different leagues that are spotlighted in this book uh, and wanted to put together some kind of a compendium. I know people have written books about these leagues and entire books about many of these leagues, but I wanted to, to have some something of a one-stop shop of interesting little tidbits and stories uh, woven into an overview about each of these leagues. Yeah, that's interesting because uh, when I started this little show two years ago or so, it had been an idea similar rattling around in my head for years. And I, you know, I've been in the advertising and media and early, way early on in, in my collegiate and just after college years in the journalism space. And it was always sort of this uh, extra idea. And but it, it always seemed to keep building. Right. There was always another log or another piece of wood that uh, you could proverbially throw on the pile. Because uh, there was always a league or a team or or whatever that was either relocating or or going bust or and it just it just seemed like it was a completely you know regenerating topic and it just keep keep kept gnawing at me to the point where you know I, I don't know if I'm ever going to have the time or the wherewithal or the frankly the discipline to do I was thinking more of a, a call it an encyclopedia right where you'd have listings of all the teams but then once you start getting into the research and you start scratching the surface if you will, or beyond the surface, you just get the rabbit holes, right? I mean, just multiple rabbit holes of teams and, and, and teams that might have been and, and conjecture as to whether there was actually a franchise or, or it was just talked about, or you get lost and you get, you, you get to write one single word because you're just so caught up in all the research. It's, it's very interesting uh, to do the research and, and whether I'm researching this kind of, of book, I've also written books about old highways and my hometown, I've always looked for little nuggets that people might have forgotten uh, about the past. And, and when I was growing up, I, I remember I was listening to one of your podcasts and you, I think, mentioned the North American Soccer League and going to um, these games and finding and wondering whatever happened to these teams because they were constantly changing. 
And, and I had a similar fascination. I went to a Los Angeles Aztecs game back in 1976 or something like that. And I think there were 9,000 people in the, in the Rose Bowl, which holds 100,000 people, and thought, well, this is just interesting. And I'm not a big soccer fan, but I, I just found the idea of this league trying to make it in North America at a time when soccer was really not very popular. It's, it's more popular now, but it, it's at that time it was, it was basically Pele and, and everything else. And Pele, everyone knew who Pele was, but beyond that, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't that popular. So I, I also grew up watch, watching the world football league and rooted hard for that to make it watched the USFL and in the 1980s and rooted hard for that to make it. And it didn't make it. And, and most recently watched the, uh, AAF, the Alliance bowl, which was uh, frustrating to me because I thought that was a great idea. And, uh, I, I think spring football in, in general is a great idea, but it, you're right. It goes down a rabbit hole and there are all these different leagues that you could, each one of these leagues that's mentioned in this book could be a book of its own and has been a book of its own. Uh, but I wanted to to condense it a little bit, and and so if if you're more interested in in learning about this, of course you have uh, in the back my my list of references, which is pretty extensive, and you can go to these other books that that tell the whole story of say um, the uh, the National Bowling League or the uh, the Continental Football League, which was was actually where this thing started for me. Um, which is kind of interesting. I know I'm rattling on a little bit, but let me let me tell you this one one quick thing. No, that, is, that's um, great. Let's. Yeah, I do want to hear the origin story. So why the Continental Football League, which arguably was you know a, a semi-pro kind of outfit that I don't know wanted to be a, a competitor or not to the NFL. You know, we haven't talked about it, it but it, it did. It initially started out with I think it was Happy Chandler was the first commissioner uh, of this league in 1965, and it had teams in 10 different cities, some of which were large, like Toronto and Philadelphia, and other, others of which were like Wheeling, West Virginia, and Charleston, West Virginia, which are little outlier towns, kind of like Green, Green Bay is in, in the NFL. And I, I had this book that I opened up, and it had a map of where teams were, where the major professional football teams were in 1966. And I don't know where I got this book or, or how it fell into my lap, but it had a map that plotted each of the NFL teams, each of the AFL teams, but then it also had each of these Continental Football League teams. And I thought, I've never heard of that thing. What is that? And so this was way back 30 years ago, 40 years ago, something like that. And I thought, I've got to look this up and see what it's about. And I found out that it was this league that was trying to be a major league for the first couple of seasons. And then decided it wanted to be a feeder league for the NFL, but the NFL didn't really want a feeder league. And especially when the, the end came when the, the NFL and AFL merged in 1970, because they had some agreements with some of these teams in the Continental Football League to be a kind of a developmental league at that point. And Pete Rozelle decided he didn't want to have any of those kind of agreements in place once the two AFL and NFL had merged. So they decided, um, not to do that, and as a result, the Continental Football League just kind of disintegrated after that. But, but they they had teams of, uh, at some point in in places like Orange County, California, and a team in Mexico City for like three or four games, uh, a team in Akron, Ohio, whose whose owner was, I guess, a uh, kind of a scoundrel and a con artist who made off with a bunch of money um, and owed. He he hired Doak Walker uh, the the legendary uh, player as, as his coach and 
never paid him. And so that team went defunct after three years. So they are three games. So there's, there are all these different stories and, and each of these leagues has stories like that, as I'm sure, you know, because you've been, been going through some of this and, and uh, your, your podcast seems very similar to what I was, was working on with this book. Well, yeah, we also, uh, our second ever guest uh, was our, uh, our pal, Andy Crossley uh, up in, uh, in New England in the Boston area, who's, who's been sort of toiling at it uh, for, for years with his little website called Fun While It Lasted. Uh, right, which, yeah. Right, which, which emanated yeah. out of out of largely a, uh, well, he, he having been in a, uh, I guess, a previous career, uh, sort of in the, the minor leagues and then for a little bit in uh, women's professional soccer as well, but also it, almost as an adjunct to various memorabilia that he collected and it was just sort of an adjunct of the of an ebay store and that kind of stuff and hey why not you know write some stories around these things uh as i have them and then ultimately sell them or or buy them and and read you know and trade them and that kind of stuff and uh, you're right i do it's also very interesting too because it's not just um i mean what i found originally you know two years back was that you know i think it's usually something along the lines of uh, people may have a particular memory or two about a particular team and then by extension league that's probably close to some layer of their childhood years. Uh, and there's a memory attached to that if it's, uh, you know, the first ever game or going to going to a game with one of your parents or, or as a family or just other things that, you know, as you take in life in, in a much more, shall we say, non-cynical way uh, when you're young. Uh, and then, you know, as you get older and all and life sort of takes you on its various courses, uh, you kind of waft back occasionally or maybe uh, regularly to to some of those moments, including those teams. And and then all of a sudden something happens. Maybe it's an anniversary of the team or a team moves. And, you know, or there's a reporter that, that, that harkens back to the 35 year anniversary of X or Y. And then all the, those memories keep flooding back. And then when you start scratching into those. The stories, to your point, right, start flowing out and some very interesting themes. And I, I'll sort of toss this as a softball to you. You know, as you start to go through this exercise and whittling down the teams and leagues, were there any themes that kind of popped up that you kind of saw repeating themselves or regenerating? Because I've certainly seen some of that in my exploration the last couple of years. Well, one of the, the themes that I see is the uh, the reserve clause and how many of these teams were fighting against the reserve clause, which allowed teams in um, Major League Baseball, for example, to um, before the advent of free agency to perpetually keep players on their rosters uh, without the players really consenting to do so. And so many of these leagues uh, came up came about as one of their one of their strategies was to say, hey, we're going to try to lure players to our league because we won't have a reserve clause and they'll be able to become free agents. And that was a powerful tool that they had to use because and, and the, the established leagues were scared of this. But the established leagues also had all the name recognition and the money and the established wherewithal to fight it. And so these teams, uh, it just again and again and again, these leagues that would would start up would end up folding after a year or two because they didn't have the money. Even the ones that were fairly well well off to start out with, they they had a good business plan, they had a, a powerful um, or or moneyed owners, and they were able to lure some some good players. The, the Federal League in 1915 would be one that started out on very good footing and seemed to have a good shot at becoming 
um, a lasting third major league, uh, but it ended up folding. Uh, the USFL had a great business plan. Um, we all know what happened with that. <laughs> I won't go into that because it becomes political. But uh, it, again and again, these, the, the theme that I see is that these leagues just don't work for one reason or another. But And, and, and more recently, there have been fewer and fewer of them because the established leagues have become more and more powerful. Um, the reserve clause is, is largely gone because you have free agency now. So the, the leagues... Um, that would challenge the established leagues don't have that as a as a card to play to lure players to their leagues anymore. And uh, there is so much money in the NFL and the NBA and Major League Baseball that there just is not enough capital and enough staying power for any league to really challenge uh, these monolithic, almost monopolistic uh, major leagues. Yeah, that, there's the well, there's the word. Well, but but ironically, and, and another sort of take on it is that it only makes them more alluring for people from the on the outside who want to get in, uh, and for whatever reasons can't get in or rebuffed. There's a theme we've seen in a lot a lot of cases. The AFL, for example, the fourth version of such Lamar Hunt, etc. Um, just saying, look, we'll show you, and we're you know, and and it do, it just it just doesn't, frankly, seem to stop, right? Whether and the, and to me, the history lessons, you know, uh, there are some very strong themes. I mean, you mentioned the reserve clause. I think there's also an element of big boys and their toys. There's the sort of uh, a trophy, sort of hunting, if you will, and, and not being part of the club and having quote unquote made it. Arguably, Donald Trump not getting into the NFL. Steve Ross. Uh, get by in the cosmos, right? Was was ultimately a rebuff from the NFL as well. Um, you know, it, those these themes sort of keep coming on and on. But it just, for whatever reason, and this is see, to me, this is the funny part. I don't I don't fancy myself an historian by trade, but you know, there is that sort of proverb of you know those who ignore history are are, are doomed to repeat it. You know, I look, I too was rooting for the AAF. We just uh, did a, a conversation with Sports Illustrated's Connor Orr, uh, which we're going to be dropping next week, who's written some really really good uh, uh, in-depth articles, uh, just not even a month or two after the, the demise of that league. But, you know, you look at that one, it's like t- t- people literally thought that they had this one figured out, right? I mean, you know, from from an investment perspective, from a technology perspective, from, you know, all these kinds of things. And yet still, right, it's maddening to me and it's and it's endlessly fascinating to me. Right. Another example, uh, you, the, the Boys and Their Toys Club, comes to mind is uh, Abe Saperstein, the, the Globetrotters owner who started the ABL back in 1960. And, and people forget that that was the first league that had the three-point play. Um, but he felt like he wanted a team in Los Angeles in the, in, in the NBA. And the NBA was kind of saying, no, we're not, gonna, we're not going to allow you in. So he started thinking, well, we're going to have a, a league of our own, so to speak. And he was also frustrated with what he felt like was too much too many points being scored in the nba so he felt like he wanted a league that there would be more emphasis on defense and the irony of that is that that's a league that started the three-point play which today has caused an explosion of scoring in the nba to the point where we've got more scoring this year in that league than we ever have before Yeah, and I think I think a lot of people, you know, sort of look at the ABA as kind of the 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 originator of that, and obviously the history uh, tells us otherwise, right? So, all right, so you, you got these leagues and teams and this idea sort of rattling in your head, and, and for for a long time, 
how do you go about process wise? Uh, you're a writer by trade, right? For in, in various other topics, how do you go about sort of uh, sifting, sanding, prioritizing, and then going to work on actually putting the pieces together without going down rabbit holes? I'm kind of a pantser, which is a is a a term that that authors often use, the seat of their pants type uh, approach. I had an idea to do this, so I thought, well, I'll devote roughly 5,000 to 8,000 words to each of these leagues. And a few of them are, are less than that. And a few are a little bit more, but um, I'll devote about that amount and I'll just start researching and I'll see what I can find. And I thought, well, that's interesting. I'll write that. And that's interesting. I'll write that. And I have all these, it, it, being on online is, is great because you have all these at your fingertips resources that you don't have to go to the library. Um, you can go to newspapers.com and find all these old clips and research those. And, and one thing leads to another. So it is kind of a rabbit hole thing. Uh, there is the sense that you, you see something and you want to find out more about it. So you go to the, the original clips in newspapers.com or, or um, old sporting, uh, Sports Illustrated issues that you find online and you find out more about that. And then you incorporate, you weave it all together into a coherent uh, little story. And, and so that's what I did. It's not, um, I've always been really good, I guess, at, at taking pieces, puzzle pieces, and putting them together. And so that's what this is. Uh, I didn't know how many leagues I was going to attack when I, or, or going to address when I started this out. I started out with the Continental Football League, and then I decided, well, well, World Football League. And the National Bowling League was one that I started because they had a team in Fresno, California, which is my hometown. And so that had always fascinated me because Fresno had never had a major league team in any sport except for the National Bowling League. So I thought, well, I'm going to use uh, that as one of my uh, devoted chapter to that. And uh, some of them were, were rather obvious, the uh, All-American Football Conference, the the World Football League, the USFL, uh, and, and, and others were less so. I even have a, a chapter about roller derby, which obviously for much of its existence was not competitive at all, but I still found it fascinating. And I thought, well, this is my book. I'm going to put in a chapter about roller derby. And it just, uh, the, the last chapter that I came up with, because you're always thinking, well, what is there anything I'm missing here? And I'm sure I did miss some things. But I came across the, the Women's Pro Basketball League of the 1970s, which I had totally forgotten about. And I thought, oh, I've got to, I've got to include that because that's um, uh, kind of a seminal league for that sport. Uh, kind of like the uh, American Girls Pro Softball League or Pro Baseball League. And I thought, well, this is kind of analogous to that, so I've got to include that. And so that was the last one that... Uh, that was included in the book and, and I just put, put them together in different sections. I have a football section, a baseball section, a basketball section, and then an other sports section that goes from everything from bowling to, um, to hockey, to softball, to baseball, um, or not baseball, but uh, bowling and, uh, and roller derby and world team tennis. And so that's kind of how it's organized. So going into this, like which, which leagues did you kind of thought you knew about and, and, and frankly really didn't by the time you got out of all of it? Uh, and, and which ones did you discover maybe that you didn't even know about 
going into all this. It sounds like the National Bowling League might have been one. And that's one that sort of fascinated me. Uh, and there's so little written about it. Uh, and, and my understanding, I, if I'm not mistaken, uh, I think Lamar Hunt, the godfather of the American Football League and North American Soccer League, for that matter, I think he actually was, was part of that mix, right, with the Dallas franchise down there in, uh, in Texas? Yeah, he built something called the Bronco Bowl, which was this huge stadium. And they did the same thing in Fresno. They built a stadium specifically for this. And, and But in Texas, Lamar Hunt built this Bronco Bowl that had 72 lanes and it was set up for television and and a big production and so yeah that that's one of the interesting things that i found about this is there was there was this one year one or two years 1960 61 where all these leagues came into being or almost came into being you had the afl you had the national bowling league you had the abl american basketball league um the Continental Baseball League, which ultimately didn't come into being, but is addressed in this book because I found it interesting that, that this third baseball league almost came about in 1960. And so you have all these different leagues coming into being at that time. And Lamar Hunt was involved in in at least a couple of them. And, and uh, Abe Stapper, Stafferstein was involved in a couple of different leagues uh, throughout his, his career. And um, so to answer your question, the, the leagues that I was – I had a knowledge of each of these leagues, but whenever I'm writing a book, part of the fun of it to me is to, to find things out about different things, uh, about what I'm researching, that I didn't know. So it, it's, it's kind of a selfish endeavor, because I, if I knew everything going in, I'd just be regurgitating things that I knew, and that would be kind of boring. Uh, the discovery, the scavenger hunt, for me, in writing historical nonfiction is what gets me into it and finding out things about like, for example, uh, the world football league, there's this quarterback who played for the Philadelphia bell named King Corcoran. And it always fascinated me that this guy was, his name was King. It's like, what was he, what was so cool about this guy? He never played in the NFL or actually I found out subsequently that he played very briefly in the AFL. Uh, but what was so great about this guy? And so I started looking him up and it turns out that this guy was the pro the poor man's Joe Namath. He was, this really flamboyant character who uh, put up ridiculous numbers of touchdowns and yardage and also interceptions in the World Football League for a season and a half, and that was basically his claim to fame. So you get these hooks, and you know a little bit about something going in, and you think, I want to find out a little bit more about that. And that's that's one example. Another example of a guy I didn't know anything about was a guy named, uh, I believe his first name was John uh, Brisker in the ABA, who was this really high-scoring uh, player for the Pittsburgh Condors, ended up going into the NBA, and, but he was, he was like a bad, he had a bad attitude, so he'd always want to fight people on the court. And, and one coach said, the minute you go out there on the court, when they're going to have the tip off, just just cold cock the guy, and so he did, <laughs> just because he wanted to get in his get in his head. And another uh, another team had this night where they invited all these boxers, like professional boxers from the past, and I can't remember who they were, but they were like four or five of them. I think one of them was Ron Lyle, who who was uh, actually still active at that time. But and they said we're going to have these people at courtside. So when this, this John Brisker guy comes in, he's not going to cause any trouble because if he does, these folks uh, at courtside are going to take care of him. Well, of course, he didn't cause any trouble. 
Um, but what's even more fascinating about this is this, this Brisker guy was, was a really good player. He scored like 25 points a game a couple of seasons, ended up with the Seattle Supersonics, and didn't get along with Bill Russell, who was coaching the team at the time, so he didn't get much playing time. And he finally made a couple of bad investments, I think, in a, uh, in a bar or a, a restaurant and, and lost his money, lost his pro basketball career, and ended up flying away to Africa. Um, and was never heard from again. And they think that he may have been killed by uh, Idi Amin's henchmen or something like that, but they don't know because he, he just was never heard from again. See, now I don't, with those kinds of stories, right? I, I can't, I don't, I can't imagine how you don't sort of stop and go deeper and then try to build those further out. Or, or perhaps you have a stack of, uh, of story ideas that, uh, that did come out of all this that maybe is sitting there waiting for renewed attention. No, I don't think so nothing stood out to you that said you know i'm going to come back to this one because there's so many layers and or intrigue here that my survey just can't do it justice well one thing did and that's the book that i wrote subsequently the, the legend of molly bolan um that did stand out to me and that was but that was something a little bit different um i i had always wanted to write a biography and had never gone i i'd never uh, gotten around to it and i'd never connected with anyone who was interested in doing it. And so uh, by chance, um, I, I reached out to her. Her, her name is Molly Kasner. She's living in uh, California now. And, but she was this, it stood, her story stood out to me because I had never heard of her. And if you hear about the, the Women's Professional Basketball League in 78 to 81, you've heard about Nancy Lieberman and you've heard about Carol Weiss-Joski and you've heard about and Myers certainly, but this player was scored more points than any of those people, and I'd never heard of her. And I thought that's just really weird. Now, why I never I never heard of this person? And so I reached out to her. She happened to be on online, and I uh, just a, kind of as a, as a lark, I thought, well, maybe she'd be interested in in commenting for this book. And and lo and behold, she did. She was interested in it. And I know you've interviewed her in the past, and you, so you know how interesting her story is. And so that story was one I, I have really said, has anyone ever considered writing your biography or working with you on a biography? And she said, well, as a matter of fact, that's something I've been kicking around for a while, but I haven't gotten around to it. And I thought, there's something the more I heard about the, the old Iowa six-on-six uh, six basketball and what she had accomplished uh, in her career and some of the things that she'd been through were just fascinating, that I thought this would make a whole book. And I, so I proposed the idea of working together with her, and we did over the next two months. After I, after I finished a whole different league, I worked with her over the, intensively over the next two months and came up with the, the legend of Molly Bolin, which is her biography. And uh, I'm very pleased with how that turned out as well. So that's, that's the project that came out of a whole different league that I was not prepared at all. I was actually writing a whole different league to get this out of my system because it had been building up in, in me for like the last 30, 40 years that I just wanted to get this out and have this be my sports book. And lo and behold, uh, I, I got in touch with Molly, and now I have two sports books. And I'm certainly open to writing others because sports has always been a, a love of mine and uh, continues to be to this day. 
Yeah. So uh, for for uh, those listeners who have not uh, enjoyed our our uh, tremendous conversation with uh, with Molly, uh, that's our episode number twenty eight. It's clear she was a pioneer, as was that league, uh, as you subtitle it in your book, ahead of its time, without which, you know, subsequent leagues and certainly now the WNBA uh, would not exist. But yeah, I mean, you know, Molly was a, she was a superstar in Iowa. I mean, you know, she she was, she was signed her contract, right, in the, the, the office of the governors. Of, and it was like a television event locally as well. I mean, it was, it was quite something. And, uh, it, you know, she was also... Not too difficult to let's put it this way. She, she wasn't unattractive either, which certainly helped uh, a lot on the publicity side as well for the casual fan. Uh, and it was just a very interesting story yet, you know, it, but I thought for sure that you would go back. You had mentioned 1960 and 1961. Right. I think there's another you know era, too. Right. Which I'm sure you've sort of discovered is the 1970s. And, and I was which was its own sort of wellspring of now we have a couple of, uh, of uh, conversations in the can uh, that we're uh, editing now, and we want to get a few more to sort of wrap them up with. Uh, one of the key progenitors of all that, and his name is Dennis Murphy. This is a guy who was, you know, either directly or indirectly involved with the ABA, the WHA, the World Football League, uh, a bit of world team tennis, uh, the roller hockey international. I mean, people like Gary Davidson, who was also part of the the sort of uh, the, the the mafia, if you will, that uh, not true mafia, but uh, you know, of, of sports shall we say, agitators and, and progenitors to create uh, new and challenging leagues, some of which for some of the reasons you mentioned earlier. That to me is just, and I, as a child of the 70s, speaking right. for myself, right, I mean, that's this North American Soccer League. I mean, that's that. The, those are the things that came across my radar. And that thus, to me, almost feels like it's a natural thing to have all these sort of leagues and, and challengers to the convention emanate from that. And it just doesn't seem to stop. Yeah, that's that's one of the things uh, you ask about my motivation. The the other thing is, as many sports fans are, I love rooting for the underdog, and these leagues are all underdogs. So I was always rooting for every one of them. Uh, the the '70s, you're right. Dennis Murphy uh, evidently wanted, had started out wanting to put together um, to have a, an NFL football team, and through those meetings, ended up in. Uh, helping to create the ABA and getting George Mikan involved and, and George Mikan one, uh, coming up with the, the, the tricolored basketball that they used in the ABA. And, and so a lot of that's really interesting. And Jerry Davidson was involved in all these different leagues as well. The, a, the ABA, the, kind of the triumvirate of the three leagues, the ABA, WHA, and uh, WFL. These people all seem to be involved in each one of them. Um, the, the other thing I found really interesting was that they were, and I didn't know this before, was that they were thinking of the guy who was behind the USFL, whose name uh, escapes me at the moment, but he was trying to get an NFL team in New Orleans. This was like in 1965 and hadn't been able to do so. And of course, the NFL did eventually expand into New Orleans a year later, but uh, in part because of this guy's push. But his idea was, since you're not giving me a team in New Orleans, I'm going to start a new league, and I'm going to make it a spring league, and it's going to be, a, it's going to be called the USFL. This was back in 1965, and he dropped the idea when he was able to get the team, and he was a part owner of the team, of the New Orleans Saints in the NFL. But this, league, this idea kind of germinated in his mind for the next 14 years, and lo and behold, it came out in, in the early 80s with the USFL, same name, same concept, 
Um, but the germ of success was there because cable was just coming about. And you, so you had this new outlet for, for televised football. And so the time was right for the USFL then when it hadn't been in, in the early or, or the mid sixties. Um, but then the, the mid sixties, right after that, you had, uh, again, the, the Davidson Murphy leagues as as you might want to call them, because these two guys were involved in each one of them. It seemed that they're almost like hopping from one to the other. Yeah. And uh, David Dixon is the guy you're thinking about from 68, who he was enamored with this idea of spring football. And uh, again, so there's another idea, another theme, right? So, you know, the AAF, it's it's demise. You know, there are various reasons still yet to sort of uh, fully unfold. And obviously, we're going to be, uh, you know, focused on that topic for, for, for many, many months to come. But, you know, here comes, you know, the ultimate brash statement, right, is the uh, the reboot of the XFL. I mean, you know, <laughs> here comes Vince McMahon again, you know, not having learned any lessons from 2001, it seems. Or maybe perhaps he has. You never know. I, I thought the I thought the Alliance of American Football would make a go of it. I thought it would certainly last the season because I thought they had a decent business plan. I thought they weren't overpaying their players, and they had this tie into to sports betting, which evidently was working pretty well. Uh, but even even with their budget, they weren't able to make it work because they weren't getting that many people in the stands. I, I don't know if you saw. You probably did see. Some of the games in, for example, Salt Lake City, where there was virtually nobody there. And I, I would love to see spring foot football work. I think I'm, I'm a football fan, and even though I, I love watching the NBA as well, um, I'm not as big an early season baseball fan. And so that period of time, having a football league to to fill some of the void for for me personally it is a great uh, a great idea, but it just hasn't caught on yet. I don't know whether whether the XFL will work or not. It, and he's saying it's going to be very different than the first XFL, but those games, to be honest, were god-awful boring. <laughs> I mean, I tried to watch the XFL, and as, from my personal point of view, it was the least interesting football league as far as the quality of football that I've seen. And so it's got to be better than that. <laughs> All right, a brief pause in the proceedings just for a second uh, to uh, pay a couple of bills. And uh, we appreciate your uh, giving our sponsors uh, some consideration, as always. And uh, one of our earliest ones that continues to be with us and we love is our friends at Audible. And uh, Audible is, as you know, the king of audiobooks. And if you've never tried an audiobook for yourself, well, uh, here's a great opportunity to do so and to support the show at the same time. Uh, and that's when you go to audibletrial.com slash goodseats. Uh, that's the place to go. And you're going to get a free audiobook download for yourself to try for free, gratis, on us. Uh, you can cancel uh, the Audible service at any time. Uh, and once you do download that book, and if you do decide to cancel it, it's yours to keep. So that's our little free gift. And uh, even if uh, you don't continue uh, with the Audible service going forward, you'll at least get a free audiobook uh, out of the deal. And uh, look, if you consider yourself... Uh, uh, somebody who's interested in sports and sports history and that kind of stuff, like we uh, try to pursue on this little podcast, you're going to find a, a whole bunch of titles in the vast array of, geez, what is it, 190,000 and counting titles to choose from. Uh, and uh, in particular, uh, if you like the if you like the hoops, you like the hoops, the basketball. Well, sure, we got a couple of those books, including, of course, probably the quintessential uh, tome 
oral history, if you will, of the ABA, the American Basketball Association. That's called Loose Balls. And uh, Terry Pluto is the writer and I believe the narrator of that book as well. Uh, that you could use your credit for that. And it's a, it's a wonderful romp, that book. And uh, a great uh, oral history of uh, perhaps the most uh, colorful uh, basketball league of all time, the ABA. Or if you're really interested, let's say, in the National Basketball Association's history, uh, you could check out the audiobook from uh, our previous guest, uh, David Surdam, who uh, we uh, had a great chat about, about the uh, history of the NFL. But uh, this book is called The Rise of the National Basketball Association. And David wrote it. It's narrated by uh, Todd, uh, Todd Bars Ness. You say that three times fast. Uh, and a lot of the interesting stuff in this book uh, talks about the NBA in the context of uh, congressional hearings around antitrust and that kind of stuff around the 40s and 1950s. Fascinating stuff. And you could use your credit for that book, too, among, like I said, 190 plus thousand other titles to choose from at Audible. And again, it's audibletrial.com slash good seats. And uh, you're going to get, again, your free audiobook download courtesy of us. You can cancel at any time. It is yours to keep. And we appreciate you giving them a try. And uh, we certainly appreciate you uh, rejoining our conversation right now. The audacity, right, of, of Vince McMahon. I mean, he's going to the big stadiums. Uh, he's got a big, you know, big television contracts and stuff. I mean, he's spring football in some cold weather cities. You know, that didn't all go very well uh, in other leagues, too. And the, 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 the track record of success, you know, with the exception of the AFL, which was probably the standout success, and to a lesser extent, the AAFC, which wasn't really a merger, but more of a sort of a cherry-picked handful of teams, there's not a lot of success behind the scenes here that uh, bodes well for, uh, certainly the AAF, uh, you know, had its work cut out for it, should it have survived. But, you know, the XFL, too, I I don't know. I mean, call me a cynic. I, well, I'm, I'm kind of scratching my head about that decision. Putting a team in Washington, when has an alternative team in Washington ever worked? You had a, a relatively strong USFL Um league and it didn't work there the washington federals never drew anything and were out of there i think by the second season so i i, I question i question the audacity is in terms of, of business acumen there but uh, who knows I, I i wish them well but i i think going to the smaller markets makes more sense to me uh, because those markets are more hungry for football you've got uh, you've got the NFL in every every market. I think that the XFL is planning, except for St. Louis. And are they really going to be that interested in in spring football? When and again, this is at a time when the NFL season has just concluded. I, I wonder about starting the season right after the Super Bowl, which is the what the AAF did as well. But would it would it be more reasonable to start it? closer when like the WFL had started its season, which was in the summer. And I think it was in July or maybe in, in May or June when people are, I don't know. It's, it's all speculation and, and it's all on the table until it happens. But um, as we talked about, these leagues just don't seem to succeed, whatever they try often. I think, I think the interesting thing now though, is uh, we're in an era where television, you know, is, is arguably more important than ever 
uh, when it comes to sports. And, and you know, having been uh, in the media and advertising industry for for much of my uh, my latter part of my uh, professional career, it's very interesting to see how dependent, uh, especially broadcast television, is on uh, specifically the NFL, but sports generally. And you even have the new Fox, right? You know, having shed its studios to, to Disney and, and whatnot is 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 fancying itself as sort of a live antidote, if you will, uh, to the streaming and on-demand world of the Netflixes and the Hulus of the world, where, you know, where else are you going to see live and relevant content, you know, that uh, will attract people? News is one uh, and sports is the other. And, you know, we, we talk about some of these sort of lesser leagues or challengers and all that kind of stuff, but, you know, the beast needs to be fed and there's plenty of inventory, shall we say, or, or availability for leagues like the XFL, for example, or the AAF for that matter. Uh, to pay for distribution, right? To rent, if you will, some time, you know, build up uh, some audience and then maybe get paid for, for rights down the road once uh, once they achieve some level of interest. But I, I guess my, my thought is that, you know, with the explosion of television and now digital video and mobile video, it almost seems to me that that's almost maybe the first thing that comes to mind when people are putting these leagues together versus, you know, attendance, ticket sales, at game experience, right? It's really about almost programming. And, and relatively inexpensive programming for the TV networks that are desperate to get more audiences. Right. And you have so many cable networks out there that have programming blocks to fill that I, I don't think there'll be a problem getting these, uh, these leagues a television contract, whether it be with um, the NFL network or TNT or, or any one of a, a number of different outlets i think the problem is is similar to what what i see in my industry as a uh, as an author is saturation um you have so many choices out there that even if there's a place for these leagues to to have a uh, a presence a television presence will people know about it or will they want to um watch game of thrones instead or or this uh stranger things or something like that Uh, it's the same argument that's been made in Los Angeles, that Los Angeles would be a great sports city if there weren't so many other options. And there's this, um, this graveyard of teams that have tried to and failed to, uh, to make a go of it in LA because people would rather be at the beach or at the, um, at the movies or, or doing something else. And I, I, I see that as the impediment to making, a league work, um, even though there's there there certainly is an outlet for it. There are, there are programmers who will say, "Hey, yeah, come over onto our station, and we'll give you a block of time, three hour block of time, or whatever." But how many people will watch it, and how lucrative will it be? Um, may give you a block of time, but people may not know what's on. Uh, I thought the AF, AAF did a great job of promoting itself, but most leagues won't have the wherewithal to do even that, and. Even if even if it's on, the television contract isn't going to be something like Monday Night Football used to be for for ABC when it was on ABC or or ESPN now. But uh, it's not going to be something like that where the the league is going to get a huge revenue chunk uh, from this because it'll be on um, TBS or or something even more obscure than that. In your survey of all the leagues uh, uh, in your book, did you uh, were there any uh, specific teams or situations uh, that popped out as being beyond extraordinary, you know, on on their own, 
that was especially or were especially memorable for you or that you that you thought you knew or maybe you just didn't didn't know until you got into it? Well, I, I thought uh, the the story of Jackie Robinson was was really interesting um, because he was more of a football prospect than he was a baseball prospect, and he actually played in the uh, Pacific uh, Pacific Coast Football League um, against um, Kenny Washington, who was his teammate at UCLA and who ended up being the first uh, black uh, or one of three, I think, two or three first black football players in the NFL in 1946. And of course, Jackie Robinson broke in with the the Dodgers the year after that. And so I I thought that was really interesting that they played games against each other, like two or three games against each other. One played for Los Angeles, the the LA Bulldogs, and the other played for the Hollywood Bears um, back in the Pacific Coast Football League back in the in the early 40s. Um, I've always thought that um, the the story of Benny Koff the the Thai Cub of the Feds was really interesting because here's this guy who came in and was um, this fantastic baseball player for for two years in the Federal League, won two batting championships, hit in the high 300s, uh, mid to high 300s a couple of times, and was this phenomenon. And then he did okay when he when the Federal League folded and he ended up um, going to the majors, but the what I didn't know about that was he was actually kicked out of the league by Kenneth on on a charge that had to do with nothing with baseball, but had to do with, I think him selling a car that was supposedly hot. And he was went to the whole case went to court and it turned out that he was exonerated. He was acquitted and it didn't matter because he had insulted Kenneth on Mountain Landis, who said, I'm not going to let you back into baseball. So he was out of baseball after six or seven years. I thought that was a really interesting story that I didn't know that aspect of it going in. Are there any any leagues uh, that you surveyed that uh, you were surprised uh, that didn't, you know, wind up making it and or if not for a particular event or situation, perhaps maybe could have continued and, and made it uh, to the promised land, so to speak? Ah, I thought that the, um, I always thought the ABA had a good shot at making it. They just didn't have the franchise stability, I don't think, to to make it. And of course, the, the four teams did uh, end up joining the NBA. What I thought was interesting about that was there was a fifth team, the, the Kentucky Colonels, which was very successful at the gate. And was pretty successful on the court as well, but didn't make it. And I, I always wondered why the Kentucky Colonels didn't join the NBA because they seemed like a good good prospect. And that the uh, the owners of the Spirits of St. Louis, which who were a, a terrible team on the court and didn't make a whole lot of money, they had moved from I think they previously were the Carolina Cougars and had done all right in, in that venue, but moved to St. Louis and they ended up settling. Um, instead of taking a chunk of money not to join the NBA to just fold up shop, they said, we want a percentage of the TV revenue you get from the NBA for the next, I think it was 25 years or something like that. And at the time, the NBA, this was before Bird and Magic, um, wasn't making that much out of TV. So they thought, oh, well, give them that, give them that percentage. And the owners ended up making a mint off of that Um for the next 25 years because the NBA became so much more popular on TV 
the the spirits of St. Louis, which was this pathetic team <laughs> that lasted a couple of seasons in St. Louis, ended up being one of the most successful ABA teams to come out of that league. I guess along those lines, in your uh, in your work on uh, on Molly's biography, uh, did you get a sense from her? I mean, we kind of probed a little bit on this about sort of perhaps why uh, the WBL didn't take and last longer and sort of, you know, came and went and, and other attempts sort of came and went until uh, the NBA basically helped support uh, the launch and the continued nurturing of the current WNBA. Was there any, did you sort of get any sense from, from her as to why and how the WBL kind of didn't sort of last much longer? Well, I think there was the, the uh, a little bit of bad luck because the most stable franchises on the WBL were Chicago and Iowa, which is the team she played for for the first two years. And the Iowa team was owned by the guy who invented the trampoline, interestingly enough, who made a, a good amount of money, and he was a, a really solid owner. And they drew a, a good amount of uh, people to, the, uh, to their games. But what happened was he ended up being involved in a couple of really bad um, investments, one of which was a, a movie with Pete Maravich in it that was supposed to, um, he, he sunk like $1.3 million into it, which at the time was a lot more than it is now. Um, and he ended up getting nothing for it. It was a promotional idea that went nowhere. And it was um, in the theaters for me two weeks and that was it. But then worse than that was he was involved in an investment in Iran and he had sold the Shah of Iran $6 million worth of goods. And somehow these goods, trampolines and sporting equipment and so forth, had been delivered without payment. Well, unfortunately, the payment never arrived because that was the time when the Islamic Revolution took place in 1979 and the Shah of Iran was booted out of power. And so he never got that money. So he kind of had to fold up the Iowa Cornets, which was Molly's team for the first two years. And so that was one franchise, but it was one of the stronger franchises. And there was a lot of inequality in the WBL. There were a few strong franchises, but there were also some franchises like in the New York area that just didn't make it. Um, Ann Myers played for the New Jersey team, and they would, would draw like 900, 800, 900 fans to a game. And so they just couldn't couldn't continue to function with that kind of, uh, of low attendance. But I think, I think also beforehand, at, at that point in time, Again, this was before the NBA even was that popular. So basketball itself was just on the cusp of breaking, uh, men's basketball was, into the big time of pro sports um, with the advent of Dr. J coming in from the ABA and, and then Burn and Magic and, and Showtime and the Lakers-Celtic rivalry. This was just about to happen. And so I think you flash forward 20 years to when the WNBA came about and the, the NBA was this 800 pound gorilla when at the time of the WBL, it was known well enough among sports fans, but not much beyond that. And I think had the WBL come into being at a time when people were more interested in basketball in general, it might've survived. Yeah. It was also before just on the cusp of, uh, of cable television as well. You wonder, you know, with a, a fledgling medium in cable television, which, you know, uh, uh, like the major indoor soccer league uh, at the time in the early 80s, really got some oxygen because of things like the USA Cable Network and, you know, and some other sports, I think, got uh, a few longer looks 
say like the USFL perhaps extended their life and or got them more prestige until they kind of screwed it up, shall we say. Yeah, it's fascinating. I, again, you know, we sort of go back in time and in this little show, right, we, you know, the, the further back you go, the more quote unquote nostalgic and or historical it becomes, right? It becomes more of a uh, an investigation, a bit more of a research effort. And, you know, because uh, there are less and less people who were uh, original actors in, in those leagues and teams, right? So you have to rely on second and third party uh, sources and data. But, you know, there's a whole wealth of, you know, leagues and, and teams, you know, from the 60s onward where uh, we're still blessed with a number of people who were uh, part of the mix. And that's that's part of kind of what we're trying to do with the show is is not only go back in time and, 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 and talk about sort of the things that are possibly uh, potentially lost to history, but also try to do a bit of an oral history with uh, some of the uh, direct participants as well. And to me, it's it's an endlessly fascinating topic. It, it, it regenerates uh, all by itself. There's nothing that we need to do. Uh, and there's doesn't to be any shortage of sports uh, or challenger leagues or, or people behind them or in the midst of them uh, that want to step up and uh, take a crack at their own little uh, 15 minutes or more of, uh, of fame and fortune, quote unquote. Uh, when it comes to professional sports in this country. But last question sort of on, on, on the book is, are there any leagues or uh, situations that just didn't make your cut that, you know, you wouldn't have minded uh, going deeper into or for whatever reason, you just couldn't uh, create a narrative around that that stuck out as, a, as an asterisk in your in your in your mind? There really weren't. Um, there there were a couple of leagues earlier, maybe the um, the very early basketball leagues uh, that were just touched on. I always thought that the NBL National Basketball League was a fascinating, and I didn't really go into that very much, but it became one of the two leagues that emerged to form the NBA. Um, But there wasn't much that I didn't touch on. Going back to one of your other questions, the league that I have been most surprised hasn't succeeded probably out of this. Uh, And it's still around, but it's very peripheral. It doesn't have the visibility it used to, is the uh, Arena Football League. Because I think that's just a fascinating concept. It's fast-paced. Uh, it's indoors. It's different enough from outdoor football that it's almost its own sport. And at, at one point in time, it had 20 teams around the country. Now I think it's down to four or five, and it's it's up in the Northeast. And, and it's really been interesting to me that that hasn't taken off. They had Kurt Warner, for Pete's sake, as, as their star quarterback for for the Iowa Barnstormers back in the late nineties. And, and he went on to, to win the Super Bowl for the St. Louis Rams. So they had that visibility and somehow that just collapsed. And I'm not quite sure why. Yeah. We, we had uh, founder Jim Foster on for a, a two-parter. And um, I, if I, if I recollect that conversation accurately, I think a bunch of it was another theme that keeps popping up uh, as we go into all this stuff. And that's sort of the, the debate and the tension between Central ownership versus franchise model. And he, Jim was, you know, very protective of his baby uh, very early on. And, and I think uh, a lot of the demise of the league after it got going in the 80s and early 90s, uh, I think he pretty much attributed to sort of losing the battle for the financial model to owners who wanted to go more the franchise route than uh, his central uh, ownership kind of structure that uh, he started and, and frankly wanted to continue with, which, by the way, plays itself out in things like Major League Soccer, right, which is centrally controlled, or the, the upcoming Premier Lacrosse League, right, which is more of a 
kind of an event tour kind of thing or a, a big three basketball kind of thing, right? Where, you know, everything is basically centrally owned and who's to say which model is right? Because arguably, you know, a lot of the franchise model was was the approach that uh, uh, folks like Gary Davidson and, and uh, you know, and Dennis Murphy, you know, were they were basically selling franchises and in some respects, almost teams didn't care to whom and <laughs> whether they had money or not. It's like, here, take it. Or I have rights to this franchise. I don't want it. Do you want it? And everybody's sort of on a, a Ponzi scheme of get rich, right? So, again, endlessly fascinating. But then, then you have the, the alliance, which was the, the one owner model. And they became uh, indebted to this one guy who came in, their, their money guy, uh, owner, of the, owner of the Carolina Hurricanes uh, Hockey League. And so when he said, I don't want to pay any more money, they literally just shut down. And so it's, it's this all or nothing mentality. Or you have on, on the other side, the franchises, which you have these really strong franchises in major markets or with, with moneyed owners and other franchises, as in the WBL, that are operated on a wing and a prayer with people who don't have any money. <laughs> Well, look, this this is great. I mean, this this book is is is, a, is an excellent primer for for those new to our little niche. You know, I can't recommend it uh, highly enough as a sampler and as a a gateway drug, I guess, to uh, this uh, I don't know this uh, the disease. Perhaps I call it a disease of 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 endless fascination, at least to me, about uh, the bold and, and interesting ideas that, uh, for whatever reasons, come and go. Some of them uh, full of folly. Some of them uh, just downright unlucky and various stories in between. I guess, last question, um, you do a lot of writing in other subjects, but uh, and you can tell our audience, you know, some of those topics in, uh, in a second, but do you have any other sports things in you or did this fully, as well as uh, Molly's biography, get it out of your system? I don't know. Now, that's the, the answer is I write things that strike my interest. So if something else in sports were to strike my interest, I would certainly write about it. It hasn't happened yet, but that doesn't mean it won't. I, I would certainly be open to writing more um, sports-themed books. Uh, I never know what I'm going to write next. <laughs> and what uh, what kind of stuff uh, are you writing otherwise besides the realm of sports that our audience might be interested in too? Well, if, if you're interested in history, I've written a book called... Um, Highway 99, the history of California's Main Street. So if you are interested in, in highway history in California, that's one book I've written in that, on that subject. I've written a, story, a book called Fresno Growing Up about my hometown, Fresno, California. I've also written uh, fiction. I've got uh, two parts of a planned trilogy out called The Memortality Saga about a woman who uh, can bring people back to life through the power of her photographic memory. Um, I've written a story, uh, a book of short stories modeled after the Twilight Zone called Nightmare's Eve. And I've written a book uh, on the origin story of dragons called The Only Dragon. And uh, I have a book coming out probably in a couple of years. I, I publish some of these books myself, and I have a publisher who, will, who publishes some of the other books that I write. And so I have a book coming out in a couple of years about the history of department stores in America. And I have at least one more, probably two more highway books coming out in the future. So it's, it's all over the map. <laughs> and where can we find out about uh, all of those doings and how can people learn more about you and all those titles, et cetera? Well, you can always go to my Amazon page and plug in my name. It's Stephen with a P-H. And my last name is P-R-O-V as in Victor, O-S-T. 
provost or provo as it's pronounced. You can also go to my website, which is my name, Stephen H. Provo, provost.com. I'm on Facebook. I, I'm on Twitter, but I don't go on there very often. But the best place, place to find my books is actually on Amazon. Uh, some of them are available. The ones that are traditionally published are available in the bookstore. Um, or you can contact me directly. And if you want to buy directly from me, I can certainly do that and give you a, an autographed copy. Well, that's awesome. And I, I will absolutely send my copy of uh, A Whole Different League to you for for signing, of course. Uh, and uh, hopefully we'll uh, get a few other people to kind of uh, pick up the book for themselves. And look, I, as I said earlier, it's a great survey into <laughs> this is this genre of uh, of sports history. Uh, and to me, it's endlessly fascinating. And uh, if you need sort of that primer uh, to kind of wet your whistle, so to speak, you, you never you can't figure out what the heck this this little podcast is all about. Read Stephen's book and you'll get a sense very early and often about how uh, fascinating and endlessly so, at least in my mind, this little slice of, uh, of sports and, and professionalism is uh, has a hook on, on at least uh, two people uh, who have just had this conversation. So, Stephen, thank you very much for for making time and uh, more importantly, for uh, sharing my uh, illness, I guess, but in written form. Well, thank you for having me on. It's been a pleasure. All right. Lots of uh, interesting uh, anecdotes and, and uh, factoids there. Thank you to Stephen for a really interesting and surprisingly so conversation. I, I really under- honestly didn't know uh, what I was going to get when I reached out, but oh boy, I found a kindred spirit, didn't I? Uh, let's get some promotional stuff to you so that you can find out uh, where uh, you can get uh, these books and find out more about Stephen's stuff. Uh, the two books in particular, although there's just a whole treasure trove uh, of things otherwise, but the two that we kind of spent uh, a lot of time on in our in our chat, uh, you got to check out and uh, add to your collection. Uh, one is called A Whole Different League, the subtitle being Outlaw Leagues, Forgotten Teams, and Other Adventures in American Sport. Uh, that is published by uh, Dragon Crown Books uh, that came out uh, earlier this year. And the other book, of course, that uh, came out in April of this year uh, that you should also uh, find and uh, add again to your to your library. The Legend of Molly Bolin, uh, women's pro basketball trailblazer that uh, is also uh, published by Dragon Crown Books. You can find uh, both of those books as well as the whole treasure trove of other books by Stephen Provo on our website at goodseatsstillavailable.com. Uh, just search up this episode number 116. Oh my God, 116 episodes already. Uh, and you will find links to uh, those two books as well as the gateway to uh, all of Stephen's other books uh, via our pals at uh, Amazon. You can, uh, let's see, find out more about Stephen generally, about all of his stuff, all of his works, his writings, where he's going to be uh, speaking and doing book signings. Uh, he's got some really interesting stories about uh Route 99 in California, the history of Fresno, California, lots of really cool stuff. Uh, Amazing science fiction series. Uh, You can find his website at stephenhprovo.com. That's Stephen, S-T-E-P-H-E-N, the letter H, and then Provo, which is spelled P-R-O-V-O-S-T.com, stephenhprovo.com. And uh, you can also follow him on Twitter at SProWriter, S as in Sam, Pro, P-R-O, Writer on Twitter. And let's see, for folks who may have not heard uh, our Molly Bolin uh, slash Molly Casper uh, episode, uh, just search up on goodseatstillavailable.com, will you? Episode number 28, 
uh, and uh, you'll have a great time listening to what I thought was a wonderful conversation with Molly. And I'm glad that there's a, there's even a book now out uh, about her, uh, courtesy of Stephen. So uh, by all means, uh, complete your your learnings that way. Why don't you? And and if you you're really interested in finding out more about this show, of course, again, GoodSeatStillAvailable.com. That's the place to go. It's the locus for everything related to the show. And you know, keep an eye on that space book market because we got a bunch of ideas and and concepts and and. and additions that uh, we're you know hopefully going to launch in the in the months to come but uh, of course you can find over all of our social feeds there at uh, uh, for example twitter we're at good seat still you'll find us on instagram at good seat still available of course you'll find us on facebook there's a page devoted to us there uh if you want to send us some email there's a link there but you could also send it to us directly at hello at good seats still available.com and uh let's see what else if you want to sign up for our weekly newsletter well we'll go ahead and do so Go to our website, search there, and uh, you'll find a link there, and you can uh, sign up, and you'll get a, a little bit of a head start about what we're going to be talking about uh, uh, in the uh, the days or hours to come for the next week. And uh, geez, I don't know what else, but that's all good stuff. And uh, I, you know, I appreciate uh, all of the the cards and letters, shall we say, that keep coming in. We also want to say a, a great thanks, as always, each and every week to our friend Jerry Payne, uh, who puts all of our stuff together, uh, making us sound nice and smooth at Podfly Productions, and that's the place to go if you want to figure out how to do some podcasting yourself. Well, the best place to do it and to check it out and get your sea legs, if you will, is uh, is Podfly, and they're at podfly.net. All right. Thank you so much for listening this week. I appreciate it to no end. And uh, until next week, we are now closing this damn ticket window. So take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.